Welcome to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram, where we talk all things leadership, change, and transformation. Everybody, Dr. Jen Fram here with another Conversations of Change. It is the year 2021. This is our first uh, podcast coming back to you. And I really, really hope that it's been a lovely, restful, recuperative time that you have been through uh, over the break. As I signaled uh, towards the end of last year, this year, I'm coming out with a new book, uh, which is very much around what leaders have to do, what, what they have to change to be able to better lead change into what is unarguably going to be, um, you know, a pretty radically tumultuous future for us, at least in, in the short term. I don't think that's going away. So I am bringing a few guests to you who um, I'm really curious about their fields and how that will contribute to this book. One of the areas that, um, you know, I've, I've been saying for a while in terms of navigating uncertainty is really the importance of data in your organisation. And from a leadership perspective, to lead change, you need to be really all over data. And, you know, what we talk about is data-informed decision-making. For those of you who have got um, the Agile Change Playbook, you will know that we have data-informed decision-making as one of the core capabilities of how do you deliver change. But in this interview, we're going to talk about it from a leadership perspective and say, well, look, how do you lead in organisations from a, a data perspective? I am absolutely delighted to welcome to the podcast Stuart Bird, Digital Futures Leader from Oricon. Stuart, welcome to the, the conversation. Thank you very much for having me, Jen. Yeah, it's great. So, listeners, um, I've done work with Oricon in the past and that's where Stuart and I first crossed paths when I was working on digital transformation there. Um, they are hands down, you know, I think you've just won a AFR's top 100 yeah. innovative companies. You've just won yes, more won kudos. First prize in that one, which was first. fantastic, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, I couldn't have a better person to be chatting to about this. Um, so, Stuart, welcome. Let's, uh, Stuart, I kind of feel like I'm going to do a bit of of, of uh, Googling with you and tell me what this means <laughs> and tell me what that means. But, no problem. But, but let's, let's start with you recently, it was in November last year, um, published an article on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. which was about navigating uncertainty. And yep. I loved it because it was it had so much of the stuff that I talk about, but I felt like you did it much better than me. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, but thank you very much. <laughs> so, look, I, I want to start with that article. You had a paragraph in it, um, and I'll actually read it because it was very good. So when the signals of change are clear, for example, Bill Gates and Barack Obama warned of pandemics, climate change or climate science is widely accepted, and the digital revolution has been underway for over 20 years, why is it still so difficult for organisations to adapt effectively? Why indeed, Stuart? Tell me. Well, I think it's, I think there's a, there's a lot to, to that, um, that uh, paragraph, obviously. But I think, you know, one of the main sort of things is um, obviously we know change is happening. You know, we live in a time where, you know, we're the 
The world we live in is fast paced. It's changing rapidly. Obviously, we've gone just through the pandemic, which has thrown a lot of things on its head. Um, so we all know change is sort of inevitable. But I think what um, you know, organizations struggle with is to really be able to you know, have the processes and the tools to really break down what that change actually means for them, to be able to put themselves in a, a wider context, you know, into a wider economic context, societal context, so they can really understand what that change you know, means for them, what the implications of that are, what risks they're going to face you know, in, the, in, in light of that change, what are the opportunities that that change, you know, presents them? Um, so I really do think that it's it's the tools that these organisations are lacking. Um, and I think, you know, part of that is that, you know, the way that we traditionally run organisations is, is looking at how we can drive as much efficiency, productivity, optimization into our processes as possible. Um, but what we tend to neglect is... Um, you know, to cast the net a little bit wider. We're looking at sort of narrowing down exactly what we do so we get very good at it rather than actually, you know, building in some slack, building in some redundancy, actually casting a net a bit wider so that we we have more context, we have more, um, you know, we're more illuminated about, you know, the context in which we work so that we can actually sort of better understand the change that's that's coming towards us. So I think that's where organisations get stuck really. Terrific. So there's a few things there to unpack, but I'm, I'm thinking I probably should take it a step back further. Mm-hmm. You are a digital futures lead or leader mm-hmm. in the organisation. Tell us mm-hmm. how you got to that role. What 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 is the pathway for someone who is working in this space as, as a leader in organisations? Yeah, so I think I think my sort of path is probably a little bit <laughs> unconventional. Um, I didn't come from a, a tech background at all. Um, you know, my education has been in banking and finance and mm-hmm. project management. Um, but I worked for, you know, a similar company to Oricon, um, you know, when I started my career, uh, engineering consulting company, international one. Um, and I ended up, yeah, finding a role in the digital innovation team. Um, and from there, that's sort of grown into, you know, more pure sort of innovation, starting to grow now into, you know, more sort of futures research, strategic foresight type work. Um, so it's a little been a little bit of a unconventional sort of path. Um, but I think, you know, the background that I have had, not being from, you know, a tech background has actually really helped. It's given me a little bit more, you know, broader context to look at, um, mm-hmm. you know, rather than getting sort of stuck in the technical side of things. Um, you know, I tend to see, you know, the the business or economic implications of technological change rather than, you know, focusing on the tech development itself. Mm, mm. I um because I, I imagine that that's something that comes up for a lot of leaders around I guess in, in some cases self-doubt am, am mm. I positioned to do this if I do not have a strong tech background you know um mm-hmm. with that it's if you look across the clients that you work with, do you do you find the the mix of you know do they need to have a strong tech background? You know, are you an, an anomaly, an outlier, or is <laughs> are you representative of leadership in this space? No, I don't. I, I definitely don't think that you need a, a tech background. I think you do need a an obviously an understanding about you know what um, technologies you know are likely to shape reshape your industry. Thing you have to have a you know a, a vague understanding about you know the the implications of those, but I think if you've 
you know, a lot of organizational leaders will naturally have a, you know, a business mind. Um, you know, they'll understand how businesses operate. What they need to be able to, you know, pick apart in technological developments is not necessarily, you know, what, uh, you know, what technical skills do you need or how do you need to code or, you know, can you, you know, crunch data? Can you design algorithms? Mm-hmm. You need to know what the implications of those things are. So, for example, if, you know, AI is going to impact your industry in some form, rather than knowing exactly how to create a, a neural network or something like that, you need to know, you know, what sort of what sort of work is that likely to affect that we do? Um, is it likely to, you know, be codifying, digitizing um, knowledge that normally a person would, you know, be um, be performing, you know, more manually? Then what does that mean for, you know, potential, your potential business model? Yeah. You know, do you charge out that person's time? But now that it's digitized, what what do you? How are you going to capture value from that? How are you going to make money from it? Are you moving into a product space? Are you charging subscriptions? You know, all of that type of stuff. So being able to sort of look at the um, the implications, the the third, the second, the third order sort of implications of these things is what's really important. I think. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, you mentioned before the term redundancy. Uh, typically in change, redundancy yep. has a fairly loaded meaning, but uh, <laughs> but, I, but I know that you're talking about it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about redundancy and resilience in the space of digital and data? What are we talking about there? Yeah, I think you know in in that context, um, you know the way I'm sort of describing redundancy is is more along the lines of you know being having sort of slack in the organization, actually having, um, you know, activities or investment that is that are going towards things that aren't core business. So, you know, having just come through the pandemic, there'll be a lot of organizations that are, you know, in survival mode or, you know, they're, um, they're looking at how do they streamline exactly what they do, cut all unnecessary costs out of the business, you know, optimize focus. Um, but that can also be a, a dangerous thing to do in the long run. Um, because if there is a, a change, you know, and as we've you know already uh, already described, we live in a, a time of enormous change and it's constant. Um, so inevitably there will be changes. You might actually be able to get you might actually get caught off guard. You know if something was to change if you've narrowed your focus a little bit too much. So really, what I'm describing with the redundancy is having you know a broader range of activities that are actually giving you insights into um, you know your broader context or you know, giving you experience in um, new ways of working, new business models, you know, new markets, um, new types of product and service development so that, you know, should change come, you can, you know, it isn't a shock to the system. Mm. You know, you've, you're, you're well aware of it. You've got some experience in it and, you know, change is, is easier in that regard. Mm. So that's what I mean by redundancy in that, in that gotcha. situation. Gotcha. So now what I'm wondering is I guess there's an assumption behind this wondering is that your use of data, data, mm-hmm. data, being mindful now of, of mm-hmm. uh, global audience here and <laughs> I'll probably annoy everybody because I keep swapping them up, um, but your use of, of data is informing where do you develop redundancy or how much do you keep redundant mm-hmm. or how... Do you know what I mean? Like it, I yeah. imagine there's a real juggle there between what is surplus, what is sufficient mm-hmm. redundancy, and it's data that tells you that 
Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I, I suppose there's two sort of parts to this. There's the sort of the operational part, the sort of the the um, I suppose the ex- exploitation side of it, and then there's the exploration side of it. So data in the um, you know exploitation side of things, you know that is you know obviously going to be used to you know drive efficiency into the business. It's going to do data is what's going to drive automation of processes, which um, you know and as described before, if we're talking about data being the fuel for AI. That is codifying, digitizing, productizing, you know, knowledge from within that organization, you know, taking people away from having to do repeat tasks again and again. Um, you know, that's in, in, in that regard, that is also creating that sort of redundancy is creating slack. It's freeing up people from things that were once repetitive that they had to do over again and again and again. So it frees them up to be able to, to learn new things, to actually innovate on you know the the work that they do you know in their day-to-day um so you know so that it can create new value rather than just having to repeat you know what they what they do so data really can drive that side of things that can really play a key role on that exploitation side but in the exploration side as well you know data is really important so um you know data what you know what we can use it for is um you know we can as I said before, we can cast that net wide. We can actually look for, you know, those signals of change through data that we can collect. So this could be, you know, pure sort of data. So it could be looking at, you know, the financial markets. Where uh, Where is money being redistributed to? Is that telling us something about changing consumption patterns or investment patterns? Is that changing us, t- telling us something about changes in the wider economic landscape? Or it could be, you know, more sort of, information artifacts it could be news articles it could be blog posts journal articles that are you know researching or exploring particular topics and that's where we're seeing that there's you know there's interest there's potential signals that something might be changing there's developments in different technologies um and by you know using that data we can actually start to um you know sort of identify where there might be trends that you know might be growing might be just early weak signals of change um, and from there we can we can do the uh, the sort of implications analysis you know, if that was to take off if that was to accelerate you know what would that mean for our business what would that mean for our clients businesses what would that mean for now end users or customers or the communities that we we live in and you know start to do that um, you know that breakdown what do these things mean and you know, what sort of actions do we really need to take today to make sure that we're not exposed to risks that, that might, you know, that might uh, throw up or, um, you know, we're really positioning ourselves for opportunities that that's going to present to us, that change. Mm. You're, you're bringing up for me a couple of connections where I'm sort of connecting the dots um, from my side here. One of the areas that typically... I work with leaders on uh, the qualities that enable them to navigate uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so curiosity and courage, mm-hmm. um, two of the strong ones. And what I was just thinking then on as you explained that, if we think about redundancy in context of operational change, as you described it, the, mm-hmm. the efficiency and the freeing up people, mm-hmm. it actually takes a lot of courage of leaders to stay that course and free mm-hmm. people up as opposed to, then laying them off, really making them redundant, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because that's the easy thing to do at that point. Yeah, is yeah. 
I, I you know, and I think the the other thing is that exploration piece. That's mm-hmm. really where you're drawing on curiosity mm-hmm. to to be open minded and, yeah. and curious around what is what is potential here. And and I liked what you're saying about weak signals. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What what that means in your world? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a big part of what we do um, in digital futures, and um, you know, a big part of you know our group is to you know bring sort of strategic foresight futures research um, methodologies to the organisation, and hence the the digital word in the title. We do that from a you know a digital perspective with a sort of technological lens. Um, you know, but a big part of our role is to actually go out and and you know um, do what we call horizon scanning. So where we're looking at a broad range of different you know input sources, you know um, information sources, to try and figure out you know where there are you know sort of early early signals of change. Can we see that there is you know um, research that is starting to to grow in a particular area of technological development, for example? Or can we see that there are a few early movers, you know, in a particular market that are starting to, um, you know, exploit a, a new business model that, you know, has the um, potential to really upend, you know, the, the traditional players in a particular market. So what we're looking for all those little sort of artifacts, wherever they sort of come from. So we could be looking at, as I said before, we could be looking at where. you know money is being invested we could look at where you know patents are being filed we could look at you know early early academic research you know that type of thing Mm, mm. um i think i'm going to ask you to go back just a little Mm. bit more strategic foresight Mm -hmm. feels very jargony can you break that one down yeah, so I mean, essentially, you know, what we mean by a strategic foresight could be referred to as, you know, futures research or future study. So essentially, um, you know, in simple terms, you know, it's really a systematic way of, you know, exploring, um, you know, the possibilities that lie ahead, if you like. Hmm. So again, and what we're looking for is, you know, patterns of change, those early signals of change that might suggest, you know, there's some sort of shift in the works. Um, and then what we we do is we um, we analyze you know what those changes might mean. We look at the flow on effects of that change um, should it occur, and we look at what sort of actions we really need to take now. So it's not necessarily about you know a lot of people will think it's sort of you know crystal ball type stuff. It's you know sci-fi storytelling or, or what have you. Um, but you know what we're really trying to do is to to understand systems. You know, we want to understand how systems interact with one another. And we want to know if there was a change in in one of those systems, how it's, that is going to cascade through a whole range of other systems that it interacts with. Yeah. And, of course, in today's world, we're, we're far more interconnected than ever before. We live in very complex, you know, environments. We operate in very complex environments where changes in one part of the world will cascade or have the potential to really cascade throughout you know, all facets of, um, you know, our economies and our our work. So what we're trying to do is to look at, you know, where those changes um, are likely to occur and what those flow on effects are going to be. Um, and then work with, you know, stakeholders around the business, leaders around the business um, to design actions, design initiatives, design, you know, projects that are going to you know, put us in a good position should those 
um, things start to affect our business. Yeah, allow us to profit from them. You know, yeah. more. You know, more in anticipation rather than being you know super reactive to them. reactive. Yeah. Oh, it sounds very fun. <laughs> it is fun. We're in a very lucky, <laughs> lucky position. We're always exploring something new, which is great. So it, it does raise the question for me, though. Um, this, if, if we think about how we're navigating uncertainty, um, you know, leaders in organisations, the question is how accessible is that capability to them? Mm. Obviously, you're presenting one model, which is the the buy model that they engage consultants who have teams who do this for them. Yep. Is, is this becoming an area that in the future we'll see organisations having embedded futures people or are they already there and I'm just a bit ignorant about it? No, I definitely think that it's it's something that is is growing. It's not overly common to, to see futures people in, in organisations just yet. Um, but I think this is an area that, you know, strategy functions are really starting to, to latch onto and start mm. to um, to invest uh, more in. I think the, you know, the sort of the the stigma around the the futures or the foresight sort of title is starting to fade away and people are actually seeing, you know, there is there is a lot of value in in uh, these methodologies for for organizations. So I definitely think it's a, a growing area. Definitely. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so recently Oricon presented the or published the the third of a three wave series of digital mm-hmm. futures. And this one was about you know, data-informed decision-making. Yeah. Um, and I'll put it in the show notes for people so that they can access that. Mm-hmm. A couple of things came up for me in reading that. Back mm-hmm. in back in the, um, the day when I used to do qualitative data research, mm-hmm. we, we were always seeking to avoid what um, it was Professor Andrew Pettigrew described as data asphyxiation. And the, the risk as a qualitative researcher is that yep. you're suffocating your data. Mm-hmm. How real is that for organisations? And you know what? What do you do about that? In terms of yeah, t- tell me about too much data in organisations. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's definitely uh, definitely a risk. I think many organisations grapple with you know having a huge amount of data, trying to capture absolutely everything and. And then just sort of drowning in it, not knowing you know what to do. So I think the you know, I, you know from my perspective, I don't think the the right thing to do is to necessarily just capture absolutely everything. Um, I would suggest that uh, organisations actually start to think about you know where data can really you know, enhance what they do in an operational context, or really how it can actually sort of contribute to their you know strategic. Um, you know, planning their strategic thinking, and then actually be very deliberate in capturing, you know, so, so the right data, because obviously the quality of the data that you're capturing as well is is going to be key. Um, obviously, there are a whole lot of new techniques that are um, coming through, a whole lot of new technologies that are actually helping organisations, um, you know, better um, manage and and analyse huge data sets that are quite messy and unstructured. So, um, you know, Oricon has um, built up a great capability in things like, um, you know, computer vision, image processing, natural language processing, so that we can actually go back through and actually, you know, analyze huge amounts of unstructured data, images, Mm -hmm. video, documents, all of that type of thing. So there are a lot of technologies that will help in that regard. But where possible, I do think organizational leaders should 
actually think about strategically and operationally what you know value they're actually trying to achieve and be a little bit more deliberate in you know the data that they capture and how it's managed and shared and presented around the organization mm. i remember um when i was finishing up my phd they were just starting to launch technology platforms which could take you know mm. great volumes of of text mm. and the analysis was getting pretty close to what you would do inductively you know mm. as a human being with your, your sorting and stuff which um had me very curious about the future of that as a domain mm. um it does raise for me the question though of ethics in use of data and decision making is this a space mm. that you tend to work in or do you find you know, are there are there ethical challenges that leaders need to be thinking about when it comes to how do they use data to inform their decision making? Yeah, I think, of course, yeah, I think it always, um, ethics should be front of mind whenever we are, um, you know, working with data and analysing data. I think the space that we play in as Oricon, um, we're sort of less exposed to some of the, the challenges in that space because we are dealing with things like physical asset data we're dealing with data from buildings from machinery from you know transportation systems that type of thing we're not necessarily dealing with people's sort of personal data which is obviously where a lot of these issues ethical concerns arise but i think it definitely should be something that uh you know we constantly think about and you know one thing that we definitely um, think about in that regard is um you know yeah how do we actually work um, you know, when we're developing these systems, these algorithms, these models that are, you know, analyzing data, they're automating a particular process. You know, how are we really working closely with the, you know, subject matter experts, the domain experts, rather than thinking that, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the technology can do it all and, you know, the black box solution will will solve everything. I think um, working very closely with stakeholders who are, have intimate understanding with the data, the systems, you know, the um, the area that you're trying to you know tackle mm. um, is is critically important. So I think from our, our perspective, yeah, we we're lucky we don't actually have all those sort of the same challenges that um, you know, say some of the social media companies, for example, yeah, will yeah. be will be grappling with. But it's certainly is certainly something that we need to take into account. We need to, even though we are looking at, say, building data, you know, is there occupant data that we're actually looking at? Are we looking at, um, you know, visitor patterns to a, a shopping centre, for example? Um, you know, what form is that data coming in? Is it anonymised effectively? Um, you know, are there any issues if that data was to be you know, leaked or, you know, or hacked. Um, so it's something that's always front of mind for us as well. Mm, mm, it's interesting, isn't it? So out of the, the latest report, um, and this is always, all, your reports are always research-driven um, mm -hmm. in those reports, I'm curious, were there any particular industries that had a really high maturity of data-informed decision-making from their leaders, you know, that, that clearly leaders are on top of this, as opposed to maybe industries that struggle, that, you know, there's real opportunities to improve? Yeah. Yeah, I, I certainly think, you know, I think the obvious answer to that one is that a lot of the tech, you know, companies are obviously right on top of this. You know, they have purposefully um, 
you know, set up and innovated on their business models so that it is a, it is a, a closed loop. They are constantly using data to improve the services and the products um, for their end users. So, um, you know, if you'd look at, say, Amazon or Uber, you know, they really employ, um, you know, what are known as, you know, flywheel business models or virtuous cycle business models where they're constantly, you know, um, basically transferring data from one area of their business to enhance the next, mm-hmm. you know, and in that regard, it's it's constantly growing, it's constantly, um, you know, it's, it's virtuous rather than vicious. Um, and I think in many organisations, uh, a lot of the business models that uh, organisations employ are still very linear, you know, still very transactional. Um, you know, they're looking at um, engaging a, a client or a customer, produce, you know, selling something to them, producing something to them, delivering it, handing it off, shaking hands and saying, thank you very much. You know, hopefully you buy from us again next time. Um, they are, and then basically they have to win that customer or client back over every single time. You know, there isn't a closed loop. It's very linear. Um, but, you know, with organizations that really are on top of this, you know, they're establishing these virtuous cycle models that are more closed loop. They're establishing, they're using digital technologies, um, digital interfaces, digital tools to have, you know, sort of continuous engagement with, the, you know, their end users, their customers. So, and through those digital platforms, they're actually being able to, you know, extract data insights, mm-hmm. they're able to feed that back into their, um, you know, their improvement processes or the development of new products and services that would add value to that end user, um, you know, on a continuous basis, you know. So, so this is, you know, really, you know, speeding up the nature of competition in many mm. ways as well. So, you know, in this digital age, we expect organisations um, to be constantly improving their services. It's just sort of we do. because we we know that they they understand how we're using it. They've got analytics on you know how how it's running. If it crashes, we expect them to have you know crash analytics on on that and understand when that's happening and why it's happening and fix it straight away. So you know, as customers, we're expecting you know quick um, improvements, constant improvements. Mm. So I think um, you know. Organizations, if they're not looking to set up those, you know, more of a virtuous cycle model and they're maintaining those sort of linear transactional models, there's going to be a, you know, a a widening gap between those organizations and those that actually have those sort of continuous engagements, those data driven um, relationships with their, their, their clients, customers, and users. Mm. It, um, it puts some pressure on them because you're so right. As a consumer, we do. Like we, you know, we get, we start to expect whatever we see happening on the iPhone, mm-hmm. you know, as or your smartphone as normal practice, not best practice. Yeah, exactly. And, and it changes our expectations completely. But I, I like what you've shared there because I can, you know, I think from a leadership perspective, um, you know, this notion of interrogating our business for, uh, to what extent are we taking part in a virtuous cycle mm. or are starting to build and plan for it? Mm. You know, it's a pretty important change organizations mm. should be looking at. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, it's it's a it's a big change for how many, you know, traditional organizations work. So being, you know, at Oricon and professional services, you know, this is something that's not, you know, um, traditionally done. 
you know, by these sort of firms. And what we're sort of seeing with uh, some consulting firms is you know, they're moving to sort of what they call a asset-based model. So mm-hmm. rather than it being um, just about um, you know, a project with set start and end dates, um, someone comes in and, you know, offers you some advice in the form of a report or a, you know, a um, presentation at the end of the project and there you go, thank you very much. They're actually productizing a lot of the solutions that they they use and sort of embedding those within client organizations, um, you know, in the form of digital tools yeah. and then plugging in data sources from that client organization into those, those digital tools. And that is actually analyzing them just as, say, a consultant might do on a spreadsheet or, you know, an Excel model, you know, in, in the past. Um, so they're actually getting sort of constant real-time you know, advice essentially yeah. that they can act on, act on very quickly, and it's a continuous engagement. Um, you know, in in return, obviously, so these consulting firms, advisory firms, will be getting you know more continuous insights from their clients as well. So we are sort of starting to see this shift, this, and it's a really fundamental shift in in uh, in business model um, in some of these or you know more traditional industries. Um, which you know puts all sorts of challenges in front of organisational leaders around, um, you know, uh, workforce challenges. Do we actually need a whole range of new skills to be able to, you know, build and productize these uh, these digital tools? And um, takes a whole lot of new, um, you know, entrepreneurial creativity, you know, to yes. be able to actually get these business models up and running and scaled effectively. So it's a it is a huge challenge for. For leaders yeah and i and i really think that's part of the structure of you know resilient organizations going forward is the startup model within you know mm-hmm. to what extent have you got it's almost like a two-speed um, organizational economy that mm-hmm. you you have your bau but you're also you have these startups within that are mm-hmm. continuing to innovate and introduce the new and and produce you know yeah yeah um, i think there's a a, a term that's sort of starting to gain a bit more traction, Janusian strategy. Um, where, Sorry, you know, say that again. I, I think it's pronounced Jan- Janusian strategy. Okay. Essentially, um, Janus is, uh, I think, a, a Roman god. Um, Roman god of, of change. Yes, of change, you know, yeah. double-faced, looking yeah. in opposite directions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it sort of builds on that, that you've actually got that sort of two-speed model. You're actually, um, you know, going after things that. Uh, potentially in conflict with one another simultaneously, and to hold that kind of balance for leaders is is obviously challenging. And but in the in the organisational structure and the the way that people are you know rewarded and you know um, the metrics that are built around that that needs to be factored in to be able to allow that. That's fantastic. A Janusian strategy. <laughs> Janusian strategy, yes. Oh, gosh, I love my podcast. I learn. I learn. I really appreciate that. And I guess I do know Janice. Yes, of course. Wow. Okay. Um, the report that came out, um, what surprised you out of it? Were there any, gee whiz, didn't expect that? Um, I'm not sure whether there were any huge surprises, but what I, I'm sort of continually surprised by is that um, there is still a huge inward focus for, you know, many organisations. Um, you know, given given the sort of the world we live in, the, the the pace of change, 
I would expect that organizations would be, you know, doing more um, external exploration, essentially, um, not necessarily focusing on purely efficiency and, you know, productivity and optimization within their own organization. Um, so to me, that's still, you know, that still comes as a surprise. Um, we still obviously see um, a lot of people defining digital, um, you know, inverted commas, as doing things just more efficiently, doing the same thing, but just more efficiently and, and you know, more productively, rather than it being, you know, uh, a driver of really holistic change, as we've just discussed with going into business model transformation, workforce transformation, you know, that is, you know, digital is a catalyst for a huge amount of fundamental, very complex change. Um, and, you know, to see that a lot of people are sort of, I don't, I don't know, not not aware of it or ignoring it or it's, you know, too hard to, to grapple is, is always does come as a surprise. Mm, yes, I, I know that well. And I think that's, the the where I come from with navigating uncertainty, there's there's a really high, I place a high value on um, your relationship with mindfulness, your ability to tame your brain. Um, mm -hmm. That much of what you've talked about creates, you know, that creates a heightened limbic system response. Mm -hmm. It's fight, flight, freeze. You know, this is potentially threat. And if we mm -hmm. personally, as leaders, don't have the capability to calm ourselves, we don't see the opportunities in digital, right? We mm -hmm. only see what is safe to us, which is what is known, what is tailorism, what is efficiency, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there's that relationship between brain health and science to be able to mm. be open to future, you yeah. know, in, yeah. in an opportunistic way, which I think is really, really interesting space to be in. Yeah, um, definitely. Stuart, you have provided an A-class education for us today um, and created lots of stuff for us to be thinking about, um, which I'm very, very grateful. What can our listeners offer to you? What would you like of them? Um, I think you've, you've obviously mentioned that uh, we're producing these reports and these publications that we're putting out um, out to the, the market, to the public. Um, you know, we're continuing to... Um, produce those we're actually taking you know deeper dives into a lot of the topics that we've talked about so we have you know one that is just being released around um, you know workforce for a digital future so how you know we need to uh, evolve our workforces for the changes that we've you know just discussed and what are going to be the critical skills that you know going to come up um, we've also got one that will follow that around um, using data and learning as a key competitive advantage for organizations so Lovely. looking at looking at how yet yeah, all of this really does change the sort of the the economic um, conditions that organizations work in so yeah if listeners are interested in learning more then please google oricon digital futures and you'll find all of our publications and um and we're always open to you know discussing these further so if anyone wants to just continue this sort of conversation then you know reach out and reach uh, out we're connect happy to with do you that. linkedin or exactly yeah yeah 
Terrific, terrific. Um, Oricon does have exceptionally strong social media uh, presence, so I'll make mm-hmm. sure that I'll put all that in the show notes as well. Um, but for now, Stuart Bird, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation of change. Thank you very much, Jen. Pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram. You can find many more resources on leading change at my website, drjenfram.com. I welcome feedback on what else you'd like to hear on the podcast. Why not connect with me on Twitter at Jen Fram or LinkedIn? 